As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, tributes are paid to the legend that is Jimmy Greaves. Spurs failed to cope with Chelsea's brilliance in the Premier League. We'll ask what's gone wrong for Derby County. And was it really a foul on Ronaldo at the London Stadium? This is the game. Hello to all of you. Thank you for joining us once again on the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft, helping me through it all today. Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy. But we begin with sad news, of course, after the death of the great Jimmy Greaves at the age of 81. He scored 44 goals in 57 caps for England, a phenomenal record. For Spurs, he knocked 266 goals, winning two FA Cups and a Cup Winners' Cup. He was, of course, part of England's 1966 World Cup winning squad as well. He actually holds the record for the most goals scored in the top flight of English football. That's 366. And he's only behind Messi and Ronaldo for goals in Europe's top five leagues. A certified legend. He played for Chelsea before spells with AC Milan Spurs and West Ham. It was very sad news. We saw tributes across the Premier League and from throughout football over the past 24 hours. Alison, you spoke to his longtime TV colleague in St. John about Greavesy in the past. What did he say he was like? What was um, notable and memorable was just how much love Ian St. John had for Greavesy. I mean, it was if their show together was a success, then it wasn't based on um, a fallacy. It was true. They just loved each other <laughs> and all that laughter. I mean, I think what made the show really watchable was that Ian St. John was trying to make it look like a proper football show and, you know, doing the things you do on when you're previewing or reviewing the week's action. And he would always get the giggles and he would try very hard at the start to keep the, the giggles under control. But by the end of every show, he'd be sort of snorting with laughter because he didn't know what Jimmy Greaves was going to say next. He was sort of a loose cannon in that sense, but it but it worked. And whoever the TV executive was, who what, what happened was they were both doing separate shows. Um, Greavesy was doing TV in the Midlands, and in St John was doing it in, at Granada Studios. And someone thought because they didn't know each other particularly, they just thought, "What well, how what would happen if we put them in a studio together? It might work." And um, it did. It did because in St John has strangely no ego at all and was just concentrating very hard on making sure he could you know he was he was counted in properly and that he said hello at the right time and that he he said goodbye at the right time and was able to go to all the clips and he he took that so seriously because because he grew up as a footballer not as a tv person he didn't know how these things worked whereas jimmy greaves was allowed to sit there in his silly jumpers and just say what he wanted when he wanted and 
that, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it did, I don't think it'd be allowed today, but it did work. I mean, eventually Greavesy um, did take it a bit more professionally and he'd have an earpiece in and he'd take part in teeing things up and so on. But um, they just it just became cult viewing because at that point, I don't think, um, I don't think TV did that sort of spontaneity, that sort of sense that you don't know what will happen. And, um, you know, it's easy to forget football's supposed to be fun, isn't it? It's not, <laughs> we, we know, it's escapism for so many people. Um, I think, and it's something that brings people together. And to be able to, you could watch the show as a family. So, you know, even people who in the family might not be that into their football, they'd probably sit and watch St. Greavesy because because it was chortling Gregor, for a lot of people, it was it was said actually by Mark Chapman on Match of the Day that Greavesy had made football fun. He was a bit of a TV pioneer in that regard. I kind of think I just caught the end of it. I, you know, I think it ran until '92 when the Premier League uh, came in and Sky. Um, and I, I do have memories of watching it, and to be brutally honest, you know, until I saw the BT Sport documentary a couple of years ago, maybe last year, you know, I didn't really know. The level at which he was one of one of England's best ever strikers. You know, that's the kind of there was different. There's different generations in this. There's people who knew him because of Saint and Gravesy and because of his TV personality. And as you say, the way that you knew any time you watched the program he was on, it would be good fun and it would be it would make you smile and laugh. Um, and then obviously watching that program, you saw how his speed and his finishing was just remarkable. Um, and another thing is, you know, the the TV personality kind of had all, so much turmoil in his in his life in terms of alcoholism and you know, losing a child. Um, so a remarkable life, and you know, as I say, those find it. I think he had real difficulty after finishing football and finding a new kind of vocation and a new something that he enjoyed associated to football. Everyone else absolutely loved as well. So um, very sad. I can only say that you know my dad's what eighty years old and never was a particular football fan. So whenever we spoke about whatever striker it might have been at the time, Shearer or Drogba or Henri, when I was a kid, and I'd say this guy's unbelievable, Dad, and have a look at him. We'd watch Match of the Day. You know, this is a Jamaican guy who'd always watched cricket as a youngster. wasn't a particular football fan. Never fussed with any of those people in the Premier League era. Would always say. No Greavesy. Jimmy Greaves, the absolute best. None of these guys can touch him. That's my dad's personal recommendation. That is the, the, the height of it for me, frankly speaking. But he was transcendental. And you and you watch the, the goals and he was a pioneer in terms of his finishing as well because there was an age of football, footballers blasting the ball into the back of the net and there wasn't much keepers could do. And he'd open his body and he'd shape the ball and he would just roll it in the bottom corner and he made it look so easy. And the way he just dribbled past people, blasted past them, incredible player and his record speaks for itself. There are some excellent features, by the way, that you can read on Jimmy Greaves in the Times right now. Go online, check it out. Matt Dickinson, Brian Glanville, Keith Pike and many, many more. And Tom, I know you wrote the, um, well, the announcement really of Jimmy Greaves passing away. And there must have been some interesting points about the other parts of his life as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of broke it up, Hugh, into um, what well, I thought about it as the stats and the story with Jimmy Greaves, really. And and Matt Dickinson's piece, I would really recommend that 
um, today among many because um, there was a big push, wasn't there, to get uh, Jimmy Greaves kind of knighted to get his to get him recognised for what he for what he achieved, um, and he got that belated MBE last year in the New Year's honours, but. Sometimes I find we're hit with stats so often that you kind of become slightly numb to them, especially in this era of the Messi and and Ronaldo numbers. But it's when you start to break them down. You know, he had a hundred league goals before he turned the age of twenty one, and I think thirty four hat tricks in his career, six of which for were for England in only fifty seven caps. It's it, that's when it starts to really kind of hit home for me how prolific this guy was. And I remember Harry Kane talking before the Euros saying that he he'll, he he thinks he'll come into his prime uh, in his early 30s. And Jimmy Groove's retired at the age of of 31. I mean, imagine what he'd <laughs> imagine what he'd have reached if he was in the same way as Ronaldo. You know, Ronaldo's going to turn 37 this season. Imagine the numbers he would have reached if he got to that age. But but I, uh, the reason I recommended Matt Dickinson's piece is because if for all um, for all you know, a knighthood would have done for him is what he achieved in his um, what he overcame in his life, and Gregor touched on it a little bit there with losing an infant child and also the alcoholism. Because you don't there was there, he he was really good with one liners, wasn't he? And and a, a few things he said one. Um, of which Matt Dickinson um, notes, which was along the lines of, unfortunately, it's it's not a wasm; it is an ism, alcoholism, um, and really kind of clever, clever ways of explaining things. And there was there was a, another beautiful line he said, uh, totally different subjects, but which touches on the stats where he said um, there was a. He said, oh, I, I did have a gold drought. It was the worst 20 minutes of my career. You know, no, lovely little lines like <laughs> this. And, and he was just a, it seemed like a, a man of his time, maybe. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an incredible story. He wrote an a, a sort of autobiography in which he, 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 he was clear, he came clean about his alcoholism. And in those days, people didn't. It was a sort of hidden. And I think part of the reason he was beloved by, the wider public, not just fans of the clubs he played for, was that honesty. You know, the 70s didn't exist for him because he was just in an alcoholic haze, recovering from various difficulties he'd gone through. And then he said, you know, he, 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 he told us about it, which obviously must have helped a lot of people going through the same things. And a lot of footballers as well, who um, had turned to drink when their careers came to a close, and we, I think we assume it's a modern thing to come be open about problems, but actually <laughs> he did it a long time ago. He will stand as a legend of all the clubs that he played for and a legend of football as well. Lovely to see tributes before the game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium yesterday. Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, Gary Mabbott, Mickey Hazard, Ledley King, Steve Perriman, Michael Dawson, Graham Roberts and Martin Chivers all beside the pitch of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. A minute's applause observed perfectly by a crowd of over 60,000 ahead of a, a game between two of his former clubs, of course. In the end, it finished Spurs nil, Chelsea three. It was a chastening day and another chastening day for Nuno Espirito Santo's side. Let's get to the football side of it. Tom Roddy, you were at the match. 
Was this Chelsea brilliance? Was this Spurs being poor for you? A little bit of both. I think it was mainly Chelsea showing... What struck me, Hugh, was how Chelsea are just dangerous from absolutely everywhere now. Um, you look at the strength in depth they have bringing on Kante and uh, Werner in that game shows shows what they can do. But it's where the, the goals come from. You know, I think five... Yesterday you had... Uh, Rudiger, Thiago Silva and Kante as the goal scorer. You know, Nuno probably went into that game thinking we've got to try and keep Lukaku quiet. We've got to be wary of what Habits and Mount do. And you finish the game losing 3-0 with Kante, Rudiger and Silva as the goal scorers. You think, what? <laughs> they didn't do a te- they didn't do a bad job on Lukaku and Havertz and Mount. And then that happens. And it's not an anomaly either. You know, um, the, the, First game of the season was against Palace and you had Trevor Shalaber, Marcus Alonso and Christian Pulisic scoring. Um, it's it's something that they've got. And and Lukaku, you know, Lukaku was seen as the the, the missing piece in the puzzle for for Chelsea, but it it makes it, it makes the, the puzzle kind of a perfect it's the perfect piece because not just because of what he can do, but because of because of his link-up play, it seems. Um, you know, yesterday he's. I think he's got four goals in the Premier League, two of which have been provided by right backs, and one from Kovacic, who is not usually the most attacking midfielder in the world. And I think the problem is that for any manager, you don't know you don't know where the danger is going to come from, and you see the changes in Chelsea as well. I mean, two years ago they were the eighth smallest team in the in the league. Now they're the tallest. You know, they're, they're just threats come from everywhere. But there were Nuno was was quite positive about the first half. Um, but I mean, I there, there are many areas that you could look for concern. Um, the thing that stood out most to me was the way um, was the positioning of Harry Kane, really, because you know that we've spoken quite a few times about Pep Guardiola's uh, the Harry Kane team comment, and he. It's it's becoming the Harry Kane team because he's playing striker, number ten, left wing, and sometimes he's in the centre back position because he's just dropping so deep. Um, and last season he did finish top goal scorer and top for assists, but dropping so deep against teams like Chelsea is not in the position to be where he's most effective. Um, and that's among the many problems they've got at the moment. Alison, there were a lot of criticisms for Harry Kane after that match. Are they fair? Oh, well, uh, they're only fair if he's doing not doing what his manager asked him to do. And we don't know that he was going against that, do we? Um, there was, I mean, I, I just think it's probably worth highlighting Harry Kane as Tom has just done because it's a, it's a very clear illustration of the dysfunction of the team. They don't seem to be... They had one plan, it seemed, which was to press high, harass Chelsea, which worked. And then and then it became quite clear who the more astute manager is tactically because Tuchel adapted and um, Nuno was unable to add a riposte to that. And then, and then Spurs became incredibly vanilla 
in the second half. I, I would struggle to think of anything positive or even interesting to say about that second half performance. It was all about Chelsea. And I absolutely love the fact that Tuchel's playing the triple six. We had the double six and now we've got the triple six. And it really <laughs> underlines, it really underlines um, the difference between the, the standard of manager that Tuchel is and that Lampard was. Under Lampard, generally it looked like he was struggling and the players were struggling with the concept of playing Jorginho, Kovacic and Kante in the same team. And the way it worked under Lampard was it made it look, the team looked clogged and they were getting in each other's way and they lacked creativity as a consequence. Whereas um, the way that Tuchel's deployed them, it just it just worked absolutely beautifully. There was freedom there. There was protection there. The balance was there. Um, incredible, really, that you can go from a manager with the same personnel, unable to cope. I mean, I actually thought if Lampard had stayed, he would never play the three of them again in the same team. And now you've, you've got it as not only the, the three of them play, but it's seen as a solution to a team that, that presses high. Alison, it's, it's great to see you're picking up where you've left off in terms of handing out pelters. This time it's Lampard and Espirito <laughs> Santo, which, 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 you know, Lampard at least had the likes of N'Golo Kante in his squad to use. Espirito Santo, come on, he doesn't have the same riches as Thomas Tuchel. You can't criticise his management style. He hasn't got a third, fourth and fifth gear sitting on the bench to bring on against a team like Chelsea. But he did have, oh, come on, he, he, he did have. I mean, I still think if you were to take a poll of managers, if you said you can start with Son and Kane in your team, you'd be rubbing your hands together and thinking, oh, think what I can do with that. Think how I can exploit that. When they are functioning, those two, they are irresistible. And they became, as I said, they became vanilla. In comparisons with, with Tuchel, anyone's at the moment has fallen short, really, because he's he has shown himself to be pretty much the most kind of astute tactician there is. Um, I think though, you know, you've got you have got to say that Nuno, it's early days. I just feel that they're watching Spurs. It doesn't look like there's any relationships between players on the pitch. There was a moment in the second half when Hoiberg was closing down, and I think. It, I think it was Gill. Of course, he was a substitute, but he turned around and the ball just played around him, and he was kind of shouting and waving, remonstrating, and saying, "You know, you've got to, you've got to cover back, and we've got to do this together." There's just no, doesn't look like there's any chemistry yet for Spurs. And you know, in, in contrast, Chelsea, they cover when they don't have the ball, they cover the pitch so well, and when they do, they have there are relationships developing in terms of the way, the speed with which they can break, you know, the, the wing backs bombing forward. Chelsea look ominously good. Another other thing I would say is set place. How many, you know, they only scored one from Thiago, Thiago Silva's uh, header, great header, but there was, there were a real threat all, all, all game. Uh, Silva could have scored another. Spurs couldn't get, couldn't get a grip of that. And actually, when you look at the league table, they're exactly tied with Liverpool. Liverpool scored a, th- all their goals from set places the other, other week against Palace. You know, they're tied on goal difference, tied on points. It could be an important, <laughs> important factor this year. Two teams that are, are uh, a real threat from set place. The one thing uh, I, <clears throat> I kind of say yesterday, it, probably last week, the, the Palace game, 
is more damning for Tottenham than than yesterday. Chelsea are a totally different kind of moment. I was talking about Lukaku being the, the the missing piece in this kind of perfect puzzle, whereas Tottenham have just gone through um, a, a a big rebuild this summer um, in many areas of the club, trying desperately trying to keep hold of their best player which which they they managed to do and so, so they're a totally different sort of moment to Chelsea and the, the result did the result surprise anyone I, I don't think so whereas you look at the Palace game last week and they've got a new manager they're they're in a rebuild and to, to not record a shot on target in that game um, and Kane not touch the ball in the box. It, the, I think that was much more damning than yesterday. If I'm a Spurs fan, the, my biggest worry at the moment is the, their kind of apparent inability to, to maintain a sort of decent level of energy and intensity for 90 minutes. They don't look fit. And that, you know, that's, not, that's not what Wolves looked like under Nuno. I don't know. They just don't look like they have the same energy. The kind of the level of of energy needed to be a force throughout ninety minutes. They start, as Alison said, they started well. They pressed high. They did cause Chelsea problems, but you never felt they were going to be able to maintain that. And you always thought there's a chance they'll leave an opening, and, they, and Mount nearly broke and scored in the first half. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing for me. You're just it's looking quite pedestrian actually right now. Even when they won their opening few games of the season, I wouldn't say that was any different. I still think the game hinged on, I think you're all right, the tactical change from Thomas Tuchel. N'Golo Conte came on, Mason Mount went off. But um, but he did put in a fantastic performance. He does deserve credit, N'Golo Conte, just in terms of the way that he lifted Chelsea. I think it was a man of the match performance. He was sensational either way. You know, he just gave them that ability to break through the press, but also that forward drive. And this is a player that many consider to be a holding midfielder as well. Tom, what did you make of it in the stadium, his performance? It's impossible not to to love N'Golo Kante for what he does, you know. Um, but he just gave, he, he gives them so much more protection. And I think what Chelsea... Chelsea have that anyway. That's that's. I think that's part of why we see so many of their defenders scoring goals because they have so much protection in the system that Thomas Tuchel plays. That Gregor touched on it earlier. That you get you get Alonso and Azpilicueta in you know in wing positions. They are so so high because they've got a back three of. Silver, Rudiger, and Christensen, and um, Allison's triple triple six in front. That they just have so much protection, it, it, and that causes so many problems. Um, and at times, you know, they can that then allows they can break forward because of that. There was one point where Christensen suddenly decides to break through and plays a one-two with Lukaku on the edge of the box and and just misses. Uh, Silver would do exactly the same thing. He would bring the ball out from the back because because they're not in because then they're not in danger. If 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 they lose the ball, then someone snaps in. There's someone right there to to go for it. Whereas at times, I was watching the Lukaku and Dyer battle quite closely, and I, I left feeling 
um, pity for, for, for Dyer because he was just screaming for protection because every time the ball came in, he, there was no chance of him winning yet. And Lukaku could hold the ball up and just wait for support because there was no one around him. Whereas any time Harry Kane had any luck in holding the ball up, there was always someone snapping in on him. Gregor, I just wanted to point out Marcus Alonso. You know, someone who played in defence, left-footed as well, not the quickest in the world. You must have enjoyed his performance. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know how quick I was? (laughs) You're right though, yeah, okay. No, he was outstanding. It's funny, he's kind of, He's had a lot of peaks and troughs in his Chelsea career. He was out in the cold under Lampard. He's clearly someone who just who who flourishes when you know in that wing back role as opposed to a left back role. And you know he had that 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 effort in the first half. I think it was when he on the volley from a really tight angle. He's a te- so technically accomplished. Yeah, he's been brilliant. And you know, keep you have to say though, you know, as much as we're having this discussion about about tactics and whatnot, the 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 players that Chelsea have in reserve, uh, which we mentioned last week, you know, he's keeping Chilwell on the bench, a £50 million fullback. Um, Aspilicueta is just so versatile. He's playing both wing back and can slip into the back three. And then you've got Reese James to come in, possibly Hudson Adoy. Their squad looks stacked. And uh, that competition is only going to kind of push, push them on as well. Alisson, five games played. Four wins, one draw, no defeats. That's the record at Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester United. After this start, who do you think is the best team in the league right now? Chelsea. But I thought they were the best team before the, a ball was kicked. So <laughs> I'm not, not going to change my mind. I just, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, I was at their um, opening Champions League game and um, against Zenit. And I wrote, I didn't write about the game I wrote about the bench because the bench was just as interesting as the 11 who started they have such depth it's ridiculous and it's also a bench full of players with points to prove and it's I mean it's just the texture to that team and the reasons why Tuchel chooses who he plays and who doesn't play and he's got that aura of a manager who um, I don't know. For example, I think he could now not play Mason Mount, the darling, the darling of the shed, and he could not play him for five games, and no one would complain because he's backing up his decisions with results, and he just looks so clever and astute. And I, I think if I was anybody preparing a team, the team I would not want to face right now is Chelsea. And I can't. The thing is, I can't see how they're going to have a blip. Because of, of because of the depth of the squad, I don't see where the blip's going to come from. So, yeah, they're the team to to watch. I think. Just quickly, there were some pretty fascinating uh, extracts from from uh, a biography of Tuchel in, in the Times over the weekend. You know about some of his coaching methods and stuff. I would urge anyone to 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 seek them out. Some of the ways he kind of uses pitch sizes to to. To, there was one where it was like he made a, an hourglass-shaped pitch because he knew that he wanted to avoid whoever they were playing on that weekend to avoid playing down the down the side down the the flanks. Um, you know, some really inventive stuff and really insightful. So I would urge anyone to 
to look that out. Brilliant so far from Thomas Tuchel this season, um, especially at Chelsea. They're top of the table, but um, Liverpool and Manchester United right there with them. Uh, long way to go, but I think it's going to be very intriguing in terms of this title race. Anyway, up next, we're going to be joined by Jonathan Northcroft. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, make sure you're subscribed. Derby County face a possible 12-point deduction in the EFL Championship. After filing a notice to appoint administrators, their owner Mel Morris has apologised to the staff and the fans. He told BBC Radio Derby he'd invested and lost £200 million in the club, but that he was considering several very serious offers to sell the club. There could also be a further nine points deducted over Derby's accounting policies. It leaves the club in a very precarious position. Let's speak to Jonathan Northcroft. I know that you've been speaking to some of the parties involved. Let's call it that. It is a sad state of affairs at Derby at the moment. Who's to blame for all of this? Well, I mean, there's this, this, this two, this two answers to that. I mean, one is a more general answer, which is just the, the, the madness of football, uh, particularly um, football finance at championship level and the chasing of the dream. They're not the only club to, to get into the state, but it's hard not to point the finger really squarely at Mel Morris. And yes, he has lost a lot of money investing in the club, but I think... Supporters ask two things of owners. One is for them to, to back a club, but all, the other is to be competent and to, to run it properly and to, to be the custodian of the finances. And if you, if, if you just look at the way Derby's wage bill has rocketed, I know he talks about these, these takeovers. Well, there have been takeover offers that he hasn't been able to get those deals over the line, possibly because of things that he wanted to get out of the deal. They had a, an American consortium that were, seemed to be quite a serious consortium that were interested a few months ago and he decided to to try and go with the Eric Alonso bid, which seemed to be quite fantastical really and and and, and fell apart. It looks like, you know, yes, Mel Morris, I feel a little bit of sympathy for him in the sense that he's not the first sort of fool to throw his money away, but he has not run that football club well from a financial perspective and he's left a lot of people um who love the club um in the lurch because of that. What's next for those working at the club at the moment and the players and, we've got to say, the manager Wayne Rooney too? Well, look, I speak to Wayne quite a lot and um, he is a fighter. You know, I, I, I guess that's a cliche that's used about him, but it's genuine throughout his whole career, I suppose, has been a guy that's been, I suppose, fueled by, uh, yeah, fighting spirit, a sense of combativeness of, of, of trying to fight your corner in, in t- situations. That's what made him, you know, allied with his skill, such a, such a great football. And part of him, I think, is enjoying this. He's in a really tight spot in his first job as a, as a manager, you know, as is Liam Rossini, as, as his assistant. But these guys also believe in the, in, in the players that they've got. You know, they, 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 they spent a lot of time putting this squad together because Derby couldn't sign anyone in the summer. So, so Wayne and Liam, are, you know, basically attracted four or five key signings um, to, to come on freeze, the likes of Phil Jagielka and, and, and Baldock and, um, and, and Sturman. So, you know, there's a lot of buy-in between them and, and, and the squad. They want to, to help, you know, I'm not going to say stay up because if there's a 21-point penalty, it's almost impossible. But I guess just fight for pride, fight for their own careers, fight for the supporters and, and try and enjoy themselves doing it. And as I say, I think part of Wayne actually quite likes 
being in this situation because it, it sort of suits his suits his mentality and, and it gives him a chance to um you know face one of the the most challenging situations you'll have as a manager in his first job he can only learn from it he he, he said that he can only he can, surely can only get better from a uh, a kind of chairman and, and club environment point of view after this. It was reported earlier this year that Wayne Rooney was deferring his rather large wages for a championship manager to make sure his players were being paid. But isn't him just coming to Derby County one of those signs that Mel Morris, in a way, you know, was 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 dreaming himself? You know, what is Wayne Rooney? you know, a player of his calibre ending his career at Derby County for and then becoming the manager on on big wages. Was, was that a mistake? Well, I mean, from, from, from a financial point of view, maybe Mel Morris couldn't afford it. He already had Philip Koku in, in there and, and he'd had Frank Lampard before that. He was willing to invest a lot of money to get sort of stellar talent, um, either players or managers. But that's not Wayne Rooney's fault. You know, you got to you got to wind the clock back and remember that that Wayne was actually playing out his career quite nicely in America. Had plenty of offers um, to to come back to to Britain. He was sold the dream. He was sold on Derby, just like everybody else was. And from a financial perspective, you know, he was but he was Derby captain in 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 the middle of lockdown. He was the one that was having to spend most of his time really aside from training dealing with the financial fallout persuading his teammates to take wage deferrals negotiating with with the ownership all the time um when he became manager he walked away from his playing contract he could have insisted that was paid up but you know he 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 wants this to work that that cost him several million pounds i wouldn't feel you know not, he wouldn't ask you to feel sorry for him because he's He's Wayne Rooney. He's 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 been very successful in his career. But you know he ha- he himself has been willing to make sacrifices to to try and make this work. And if if bringing him um, was a financial mistake, well, it wasn't Wayne's mistake. If you know what I mean, it it, it, it seen, seems to be part of Mel Morris's kind of shoot for the stars policy. What's the outcome for you? Do you think you know this points deduction, the maximum twenty one points? will be delivered to Derby County? And, and where does that leave the club going forward? Do you think there'll be a quick sale, maybe? I think it's going to go in stages. I mean, the, the minister, the, the, we'll find out a lot in the next two weeks. I think administrators will now, they, they come in and, and, and there's a sort of period where they have to assess the club. And if the administrators think that, that this is salvageable, then they will sort of take over the running of the club and will try and find buyers. They might not think it's salvageable. And then you're talking about the doomsday scenario of the, the thing being wound up. I mean, that, that doesn't tend to happen, but it theoretically could happen. If they then try and run the club, you've, what you're looking at really is, is they'll be trying to cut costs and raise money. And it's quite bleak for, the, for, for the, the football side of things, but there would probably be a fire sale in January. The, 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 the administrators would probably want to to start bringing in income by by selling players so it could weaken that squad even further um and then you've got the the points deduction which i i think will be more than 12 points i'd be surprised if it wasn't 21 and that that you know it's one thing wayne being able to say at the dressing room come on lads it's only 12 points we can get out of this to to try and (laughs) try and say that they can get out with 21 is, is 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 pretty difficult so they've got to somehow summon the pride and personal resilience to keep going in that scenario and really the the you know the hope would be that the administrators would be able to 
to find a buyer. What is in, I found it interesting that Mel Morris sort of alluded to in his comments with um, he did an interview with fan sites and 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 locals um, over the weekend, and he did allude to the fact that the there might have been interested parties basically waiting for this moment. You know, he said he made a mistake in saying the club was up for sale, as it were, for for he didn't want any money from it, and he said you know parties have been waiting actually to get it as cheaply as possible. So maybe someone else will come out. And, and try and try and take it now. I do think that's the only that's the only hope. Realistically, it's the only hope that there's a quick sale, and somehow um, they can go down to League One, but with um, a sense of momentum about them, and, and try and come straight back up. Okay, let's get back to Gregor, Tom, and Allison on Derby County. Gregor, I know you've written about what's happened to them. Where, where do you sit on whose fault it is, Johnny's? laying it at the door of Mel Morris, of course. Any more to it? The thing that's kind of quite striking about this is there's there would be sympathy from supporters and you know clubs in the Football League towards Derby County, the football club, but almost zero towards Mel Morris because of the kind of obstinate, arrogant kind of undertone of his tenure. Um, the way that they've tried to circumnavigate Football League spending rules, the way they were the first club to to sell their stadium and lease it back to a company owned by Morris to get around spending rules, all because in the first three years of his ownership, the wage bill trebled and they ran up £97 million of losses. Um, so everything, you know, well, Mel Morris gave an interview to BBC Radio Derby yesterday and he, he came kind of close to saying sorry. He said sorry, but there's always a but. <laughs> There's always a but. It's always like, yeah, but look at the EFL. I reference this in my piece. The the statement they released on Friday night was absolutely abhorrent, I thought. It was there was no contrition whatsoever. He's the guy who's been at the at the top at the helm for for five or six years now. And they were basically saying COVID came along, but every single club in the country has had to deal with COVID and navigate that. And the football league have basically been trying to challenge all our <laughs> all our inventive uh, accounting practices for the best part of two years and they've made life hard and they've made it impossible for me to sell the club. There was no contrition. He came close to saying sorry in, yesterday. As I say, there's always a but. And he was saying, he has a point in that Derby County, a club of Derby County's size, are disproportionately affected by the pandemic because of the amount, the extent to which they rely on Gates, gate revenue, and they're not a club in receipt of parachute payments, which completely skews the balance in, in the championship. But having said all that, he's the one who, who pushed all the chips on reaching the Premier League and he failed. And th- that is the reason why Derby are in this situation. Um, so, uh, you know, on Saturday, it was kind of, uh, it was quite, uh, it was a bit of a tonic, I think, the, the fact that they the got a win. Mistake. Absolutely, yeah, because the fans were really, really, really behind, right behind the team, right behind Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney wasn't told about this by by Mel Morris. He found it on Sky. He found it on Sky Sports as he sat down to watch Leeds v Newcastle on the Friday night with his kids, which is, again, you know, says a lot about the way this club has been run. And so there's a lot of sympathy for him. And actually, I asked him at the end, I said, if not this, Wayne, <laughs> what what will it take for you to walk away? And I was, you know, I think it's quite admirable in that he's saying, I, I really enjoy the football side of this. Put everything 
to one side about what's been going on at this football club. I enjoy working with the players and I enjoy developing them and I'm asking them to sacrifice a lot and I wouldn't be able to kind of live myself if I walked away. So, you know, it could turn out to be the making away in Rooney. It's not, there's no pressure on him now. This season's a write-off. Next season, they'll be in League One. There'll be a big fish in League One. And if he wants to hang around and, and try and turn the ship around, I think he would, um, you know, he should be lauded for it. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done before he does that. Um, but I think, you know, it was a, it was, it was a positive day for Derby actually after a, a pretty traumatic 24 hours. Tom Roddy, what do you think about this situation? Is this the end for uh, Derby County as we know them? This isn't a Wayne Rooney story, but it, Wayne Rooney is now probably one of the only managers in um, in football with a bit a, a sort of no lose situation because if they if they manage to survive relegation, then his kind of record and his status as a manager is immediately lifted. But it, relegation is what's expected now of them. They're they're in such a dire situation, but. This is this is a situation which we've spoken about it so many times about clubs and the rules that are in place or the lack of rules that are in place in football where you get clubs and owners walking this tightrope um, between sort of ambition and really damaging uh, your your own club to the to the point of irreparable damage, really. And you look back two years ago, they were in the playoff final against Aston Villa, two clubs who spent so much money to try and get to the Premier League and, and look at where they both are now. You know, Villa spending, I know they made 100 million from Jack Grealish, but being able to, to spend 100 million pounds on players, it is... Um, it, and being an established Premier League side, it's and then at the opposite end you've got Mel Morris and Derby, who it, 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 the gamble hasn't paid off, and then even the the mistakes of of deciding to hire Philip Koku um, after that, it, it was just a. I was going to say a series of unfortunate events, but it's it really is mis mismanagement, and the problem is you think a lot of you know, foreign owners get a lot of criticism, but just because you have good intentions doesn't mean you can run the football club in the right way. Alison, this is a familiar story. Um, and still, it seems we haven't got a grip with the overspend in football yet. And this is really post-pandemic too. I know it's, of course, a long time coming. Um, do you think we're going to continue to see this or do you think you know, regulation will become tighter as we've wanted for so long in the EFL, in football generally? Well, it's a sad fact that it's only when big clubs or clubs with history are affected that everyone sits up and takes notice. And and Derby are a club with with history. I mean, the Clough era was fascinating and successful. And this might prompt a rethink. I think you have to think about what, can practically be done. And uh, Gregor alluded to parachute payments. You can see why they exist, but they have the knock-on effect of making clubs who feel they ought to be in the top flight overspend and overreach in competition with the clubs who are getting the parachute payments. 
but they don't get the parachute payments. So it's, it's a huge temptation to roll the dice. As, as, I mean, Gregor's analysis was spot on. But what, if I have any sympathy at all, I don't particularly have sympathy with Mel Morris, but, but, but if I have sympathy with clubs in a similar situation, it's that if you've been unable to get into the Premier League and it, you feel like if only you could because you do have the fan base and you do have the history, you do have a potential infrastructure to cope with that, it must be hugely tempting to take a few gambles to make that leap because once you're there and you're in the system of getting the parachute payments and it, it, it does seem to me a little unfair that we're just going to constantly get this this rebound effect that the clubs that go down see it as a model almost, that it doesn't matter if you get relegated from the Premier League, you get your parachute payment and then you come back up. Badong, badong, badong. But this, I think this has to end. A, it's not very entertaining for people because there's almost no jeopardy involved if you know you're going to come straight back up. I, I mean, I do feel, for example, that Norwich have made it into a sustainable model that... They don't have to worry about what they do in the Premier League. And, you know, I think we all want the bigger, more famous clubs to have at least a chance of being promoted without without the desperation of having to call in administrators. So I think probably because Derby are sort of famous <laughs> that people might, and they need to rethink the figures. They need to re, reconfigure how parachute payments are used whether they can be used better. Maybe there could be a reward structure that if you're a club that does things well financially, you get a, an extra boost from, from the Premier League's coffers to make the competition in the championship more fair and less damaging financially. Well, I'm sure we're going to follow this story very closely at Derby County over the coming uh, weeks and months on the game podcast. Up next, though, we're going to talk events at the London Stadium, penalties that should have probably been given and one big one that was missed. Stay with us. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Well, it was a bit of a madcap game at the London Stadium on Sunday. It finished West Ham United 1, Manchester United 2. Three games in a row. Cristiano Ronaldo on the score sheet. 
But really, it was an odd day for the referee, Martin Atkinson, and the VAR official, Darren England, because so many people were talking about decisions that probably should have been given in the end. Before we get to that, let's reflect on the game as a whole. Alison, you were there. Great atmosphere, I imagine. What was it like? Yeah, it was... um it was a very nice day out, Hugh. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, for a start, it's been a while since I've been at the London Stadium and there's been no grumpiness. It seemed to be more or less full and it was very jolly and just a just a fantastic positive atmosphere. I think United fans always, the away fans always make themselves heard. So it was like a good old-fashioned proper, proper match. It was open end to end you had um everyone was there to see you know everyone was very happy to be there to see ronaldo on his second tour of britain it was um you know, it, was, <laughs> it was it was great fun and he's a showman and that adds an extra element to it whether you whether you admire him or not um he it's hard to take your eyes off him and that is significant when we come to talk about the decisions because he he over eggs everything and i think that will make um referees think twice about giving what might have looked like an obvious penalty because he overdoes it. So it's, it looks a bit like a dive, even if it might be a real foul. So he needs to get to grips with that. And his manager knows it because he mentioned it at the end. He said, well, maybe he'll never get a free kick, but there's a reason for that. But the match itself, um, it was it was hugely entertaining and he didn't even need the six crazy minutes at the end, but it, it got them anyway. So you... I mean, a draw felt more or less felt more or less fair, I think, in terms of chances created and and, and good football played by both teams, but both both probably slightly too open. And then you get that wonderful narrative of a player who, when he's warming up, is applauded by the home fans. The United player is applauded because um, Lingard was such a hit when he was on loan at West Ham. They loved him. Uh, he propelled them to European football and he loves them because it gave him a place in the shop window, made him more likely to be um, coveted by the club that owned him and to get a chance with England. And it's all very warm and all very lovely. And then he, <laughs> and then he comes on and scores a, sort of a wonder goal. It's a very nice goal and uh, <laughs> doesn't really want to celebrate. And uh, who else but Ronaldo? <laughs> so funny the goal had nothing to do with Ronaldo but he he made sure he was sort of centre because he was pushing Lingard towards the Man United fans say go on go on celebrate what's this nonsense about (laughs) feeling emotions about the opposition go on so I like I like that enormously and you think well you know United have the the depth of squad Ah, you know they've got superstars they've won and then you get a penalty given with the drama of the referee going to the monitor so you you're not entirely sure what will happen and then I mean I sat there going you are kidding me you are kidding me because we saw Mark Noble warming up and I'm thinking is that coincidence was he going to come on you know for some sort of I don't know why he'd be coming on he was obviously coming on to take the penalty because he <laughs> there's no other reason why other than sentiment you'd let Mark Noble come on at that point And sure enough, Mark Noble, can I just point out, Mark Noble, I am 100% sure has not been around the back of the building practicing penalties while the match has been going on. He has been sat on the bench watching the game unfold, thinking he's not going to play. And he comes on and he doesn't even dribble the ball with him. He's bouncing it with his hands. (laughs) And so his very first kick is 
is a spot kick and, and against, um, I think, probably the worst saver of penalty kicks in the Premier League in David De Gea. In football, full stop. Okay, <laughs> football, full stop. And... And it gives, makes him get, he's at the right height. It's not hit quite, it's not the most awful penalty, but it's just a nice height for a keeper and it's not hit too viciously. And De Gea makes it look, oh, like, I mean, De Gea looks so happy afterwards. Um, And so you just think, oh my goodness. I mean, no, 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 no. Why did that happen? But all in all, um, and I love the way Solskjaer ran on the pitch to celebrate. Um, I'm, I think throughout, You'll have noted, Hugh, I've been quite positive about Solskjaer. I think it's slowly, slowly, in a sort of slightly eccentric way, starting to take take shape there. Definitely very good camaraderie amongst the team. And I was one of those who wondered if it might, the existence of Ronaldo might make people feel a bit perplexed. But it seemed to be working. No, I'm not sure about that. You know, <laughs> The table suggests it, but um, but they're very fortunate to have you know walked away with three points against West Ham yesterday. Of the other teams on the same amount of points of them, Chelsea and Liverpool, I actually think there's a bit of a gap between the style of, of Chelsea that we've already spoken about and the, the power, it seems, of this certainly Liverpool starting 11 at the moment. Manchester United certainly have something. Cristiano Ronaldo has definitely given them a spark, but... Um, but when you say taking shape, it depends what you really mean. I'm, I'm not sure we're seeing the prospective title winners in Manchester United just yet. They've got the players. No, I wasn't saying that. I've already said Chelsea are going to win the title. I'm just saying it's not It's not a complete disaster. And they finish second next year. So if it's taking shape, what, what else is there to come? Well, you can't, I mean, I think people have been calling for Solskjaer, you know, to go, haven't they? They've been thinking to make the next level, they need to get rid of him. I'm saying don't. This, I don't think anyone particularly could come in and make it work better at the moment, integrate it better. There's always, okay. I think there's always going to be, there's always going to be too many, too many big names in that team. And you need someone incredibly patient to work the way through it. I think there'll always be a player that's disappointing at United. It was probably Pogba against West Ham because Fred, who you'd put your money on to be disappointed, was actually all right. <laughs> Let's go through the penalty decisions. Um, Gregor, I'm going to come to you on this. You're the person that's most experienced in and around the penalty box. Yeah, giving away penalties, exactly. (laughs) Um, Wan-Bissaka on Salchek. Penalty, surely. (laughs) Yes. Next. (laughs) (laughs) That was insane. Yeah, it was very odd. Sometimes I think when the ball's not really in kind of direct kind of proximity, then that's maybe the reason. But it it was blatant. It was it absolutely. There was. I think we can. I can like just make this very easy for you. I think they were all penalties. It's true that Ronaldo made the most of the challenges that came his way. The next one by Kufal and then by Zuma, but they were just idiotic challenges. So he has the right to make. <laughs> that's modern football, unfortunately. He has the right to go over a leg that is directly in front of him. They were all penalties. I don't, maybe I've made that a bit too short and sweet for you, but <laughs> there's, no, there's no two ways about it, in my view. Anyone disagree? I, I'm surprised to hear you saying that as a, as a former defender, Gregor. But, well, look, Ronaldo, um, Ronaldo's the master of it. The, the, when you look at Zuma's in real time, you think, oh, that's blatant. And then you watch it in slow motion and you see that he was already going down. But still, Zuma slid across him. There's nowhere near the ball and he gave him the decision, he gave him the option. And it was the same with, with Kufal. He, he stuck out his leg and you saw him kind of realise that, oh no, but it was too late. 
and Ronaldo ran into his leg and went over. They're both penalty kicks. I wasn't I wasn't sure about Zoomers. I didn't really see. Uh, I think he's he's desperately looking for the contact, whereas. You know, you see, there there are the times where you say, "Oh, they should they should go over to get it," but but then there's also l- desperately looking for it. And I think you see Ronaldo's reaction and know. I mean, he's laughing, and I don't think that's that's out of shock that it's not been given. I think it's <laughs> yeah, because it he's desperately looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was incredibly perplexed, Tom, that that penalty hadn't been given. There are times where. And I've said this many times on here that when a forward is looking for a penalty or a free kick to the extent that they kind of actually stick their leg out. Jamie Vardy's the best at it. He sticks his leg out to make contact with the defender. I don't want it to, I want to see that I don't want to see them given because that is a blatant dive. But when a defender makes a, such a foolish challenge and gives it gives the, the forward, the attacking player, an easy option, it's got to be a penalty. I think it was. But Ronaldo goes starts to to fall before the contact's made. It's it, and and that, and that is counterintuitive. I think if you've got a split second to make your mind up whether it's a but it's a foul, isn't it? Not. Let's let's be honest. It's a foul, isn't it? I mean, if he doesn't go down just before the contact and he takes an extra step, he still gets wiped out. It's a foul. I mean, we've seen so many of them given in football. I mean, we're just talking about consistency here. That would have been given at so many other games by so many other officials on the weekend. Between the official on the field, Martin Atkinson, and the VAR, Darren England, you are genuinely telling me the PGMOL are going to come back to us and say that was the right decision. No, they probably won't. They won't. They (laughs) they can't. It's the authenticity of it. It's seeing seeing that there was no... You know, you you can't say, well, he was about to foul me, so I went down. you, you have to have the contacts there. Listen, uh, remember the, the, the Delhi Alley one against Wolves? He knocked the ball to his left-hand side and he just went straight into the goalkeeper, got a penalty, got checked by VAR, still stood, scored it. That's the same one as Gregor was saying. That's what Vardy does, isn't it? It's, you, you put, you, it's putting your leg in an unnatural position in order to, to get the contact. I think they're different. Tom, if those are given... How could Ronaldo's not be? Because I, I, I think it's a different, it's a different situation because you're looking, there, there was the contact. The difference between them is that Vardy and Delhi are putting their leg in an unnatural position to get the contact, which doesn't, which isn't right. I don't, I don't believe it's sort of um, in the etiquette Spirit of the game. Of the game. Yes. Spirit of the game, exactly. <laughs> and um, whereas Ronaldo's, they're, they're isn't the contact he's going down before it happens and it's foolish of zuma my my god it's and it's typical of zuma that's that's the way he plays the game but he's going down before before any contact is made that's not how a foul works it's like the number one rule number one rule of defending don't well there's two i suppose number one and number two one's don't dangle a leg that's what kufal's done and the second one is don't go to ground to both of those things the penalty box you're giving the attacker an easy option. But what this match and its refereeing showed us is that we're now entering the realms of minority report and pre-crime because <laughs> you, you will never know what would have happened if Ronaldo hadn't decided, I'm about to be fouled, I'm going down theatrically before contact is I, I don't even think he went down theatrically. 
It's just oh, a foul. He did. He did. He did. It's he just did. a foul. He's it's just a foul. Of not falling without theatrics. I watched that. I watched that and thought he was that he's just a little bit sharper than anyone else. And it was he, it was premeditated, and that he saw it coming. But he saw it coming very quickly, and he knew he knew to go over. But the challenge was made. Like you're right, Alison. You go down Minority Report route. So really, I think you've just got to look at how idiotic the tackle is. If someone makes a tackle in the box like that, and it gives the one that's kind of could be given and couldn't be given. You've got to give it. Honestly, I didn't think we would discuss. We would. We are probably the only podcast in football <laughs> that has come to the conclusion that that might not have been a penalty. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. St- if I could storm out, I would. Let's put it that way. <laughs> We're gonna end the conversation about the penalties now. Two Stonewall pen said Solskjaer. I agree with him on that one. Let's quickly, Tom, reflect though. On the penalty decision, in fact, Gregor as well. I know Alison's views on the surprise that Mark Noble was coming on. Does anyone disagree with me that it was an incredibly ridiculous decision to bring Mark Noble on? Does anyone think that was the right thing to do? He's the club's penalty taker. Bring him on. Uh, not here. I, you don't need to no. storm out on that one, Hugh. No, exactly. Um, no, I mean, exactly. I know it's not. It's not like they have um, a, a Ronaldo in their team who's uh, or, or a. Shearer, you know, um, for penalties. But I looked at the team and thought, you know, Rice, Yarmolenko, Lanzini, yeah, even Fornells. There were guys out there who could have easily taken that penalty. Um, and I, I'd have wagered that they'd have, they'd have scored it. If it was the 80th minute, do you think Noble would have come on? But I think it's true that if it was one of those where if he if he scores it, then everybody goes, oh, well done, because he's got a great record of penalties. But I also know what it's like to be 33 years old and sit on the bench for 89 minutes, and you're not moving freely when you come on. <laughs> and and you're not kind of, you're not really like tuned into the atmosphere around you, and you've not struck a ball properly for quite some time. It, you know, I don't think... Put it this way, I don't think he'll do it again. I thought it was an incredible decision. It probably cost West Ham a point in the end. I'm not really sure why he didn't trust one of the players out there to take the penalty, but there you go. David De Gea gets his first save for 40 penalties. Hadn't missed since 2016, Noble, so you get it. You, you almost get it, but no, not for me. Another um, another storming out issue as far as Wusencroft's concerned. Um, <laughs> Jesse Lingard, just finally on him, you know, he got a great goal. It was a good substitution made by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, so credit for that as well. But Alisson, just reflecting on, as a Manchester United fan, why he didn't go absolutely crazy and start celebrating with the fans because he was on loan at a club for six months. Football's eating itself once again. No, 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 no. I mean, you're making it sound like it was he was just there and people didn't even remember he was, you know, temporarily on the books. He made a massive impact at West Ham and Six throughout months. his time throughout his time there, he spoke Ridiculous. about his he spoke about his gratitude and how wonderful the fans have been in welcoming welcoming. Just top in it to win a game. He'd, 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 he owes them a lot. I think probably if there's only if you were to say there's one example where it is acceptable not to, to, to celebrate, this would be it. Most of the time, I agree with you. It's pathetic because everyone's played for somebody else. Just played for Man United since he was a kid. This, it's all right though. This this 
you the welcome he was given on the day no it was and he did sort of half celebrate by the end anyway so it's fine he was forced to by ronaldo as you pointed out disgraceful bruno yeah i think bruno was kind of <laughs> slapping him in the back of the head go come on you what are you doing <laughs> listen after his disappointment in midweek it was a great winner for jesse lingard good win for manchester united much more to come on the game podcast uh, we'll be back later on this week but tom roddy alison rudd and gregor robertson thank you for joining me and thank you all for listening as well Remember Remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Thursday. you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.